Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again on the Farcast. It is June 18th, 2019, and the world just gets weirder. Stock markets in the U.S. are about 1% off of their all-time highs. Markets today went surging with the Dow Jones Industrial Average up over 350 points. That was about 1.35%. The NASDAQ was up about the same in terms of a percentage, with the S&P up about 1%. Uh, It was a great day for markets. Uh, A couple of things happened today. Uh, The president said that he was going to meet with President Xi coming up. We're not solving, solving the trade crisis, but the uh, two children who have been fighting and spatting are now going to at least uh, sit down like big boys. So somehow markets thought that that was a really, really good thing. Am I going to get in trouble for saying that, Harry? Uh, no, I think I think that uh, I think that's actually a pretty accurate. That uh, the the schoolyard spat is uh, is over for for the moment. Uh, as long as the until adults it's are not right until it's yeah. not. We'll see. Uh, the uh, what we saw though was uh, before. Uh, the president suggested that suggested that he could actually stand to be in the same room uh, with President Xi in the next couple of weeks as we perhaps have some discussion of trade or whatever it is they talk about when they're alone. A little alone time never hurts, I guess. Uh, we had word from Mario Draghi, uh, who is running the European Central Bank overnight, suggesting that their economy is slowing and that they would come forth with more quantitative easing, more stimulus for their European Union monetary policy. That sent stock prices higher because why not? If we're going to get more money and cheaper money from a central bank, this is what we've been living on, ladies and gentlemen, for the past 10 years. Central bank money from around the world, low interest rates when we can get them lower, uh, tax cuts when we can have them there too. The government is in control of all of our financial futures. So, Uh, But uh, the president didn't like that Draghi said he was going to cut rates. The president suggested that that was a way to uh, uh, bolster uh, the EU currency uh, and denigrate the dollar. And the president didn't like that, and he thought that uh, that meant that the U.S. was just another victim of abuse from another central bank around the world that didn't care about playing fair. Um, so uh, in spite of the president's comments, when uh, it's the, the, the rally kind of tempered when he made those comments, but then when he said that President Xi and he would meet, the market went back up. And are you hearing a theme, ladies and gentlemen, because it's driving me out of my mind. Uh, every time uh, a central bank, every time a politician uh, makes a comment, stock prices are soaring and whipsawing from one direction to the other. Uh, it's hard to keep one's stomach. There's not enough Dramamine for all of us. And for the life of me, I can't quite figure out why we're listening as closely as we are, hanging on each syllable as much as we are. And of course, the Federal Reserve is meeting today and tomorrow in Washington. We will get the report Uh, tomorrow afternoon at 2 p.m. of the Fed's deliberation. So that will come forth on June the 19th, tomorrow afternoon, 2 o'clock. I was on TV today discussing why I thought that the Federal Reserve a couple of weeks ago was wrong. Uh, I was also, uh, so I was on uh, talking about why the Federal Reserve was wrong and why investors' reaction uh, has me so peeved at the knee-jerk Pavlovian reactions to sell everything or buy everything and drive the market up hundreds of points in one direction over another when there really hasn't been a material change. Why in God's name it's wrong for the head of the European Central Bank to suggest that the European economies might be stalling and may need further stimulus. I I don't know why that's wrong. I don't know why the president necessarily sees that as a threat to the United States. but anyway, uh, there's a lot about what's going on in the world these days that I don't understand. My advice, of course, on CNBC today was rather consistent um, uh, with, with the theme I've long held, which is uh, in the fish market, you ignore the yelling and the screaming and you pay attention to the price of fish. 
I posited that the price of fish wasn't bad right now. The S&P 500 trading at about 17 times earnings. That's on the higher side of average. It's not way high. Uh, a year or so ago, we were up at 19 times earnings, and I suggested that that was high. Uh, stock prices came down, especially over the course of the year. The FANG stocks came down a lot. So one of the things we're going to try and talk about tonight is what you should be doing and what you should be thinking about your portfolio amidst all of this noise. Um, and we're also going to talk about a little bit about the role of the central bank. Uh, uh, Harry and I were talking earlier, and uh, the president uh, had said once again recently, Harry, wh where did he say stock prices would be uh, if the Fed hadn't had all of these rate hikes? He was saying the Dow would be 10,000 higher. If what? If the Fed hadn't increased if the Fed, rates if nine the times? Fed hadn't, if the Fed hadn't increased, uh, uh, increased uh, rates, uh, or if they, by a, uh, if they dropped by 100 basis points now that uh, we, we'd see a, a Dow 10,000 points higher. Well, that's very interesting, if the, because that's two very different statements. If the mm -hmm. Fed hadn't raised nine times, nine times, nine quarter point hikes, I guess was the first one a half a point? I can't remember that at all, actually. So we're somewhere uh, around two and a quarter to two and a half percent the Fed raised off the bottom after the Fed lowered it down to the floor. So... We're, you know, if they hadn't done any of that, we'd be 10,000 points higher. We're going to be 10,000 points higher on the Dow if they cut 100. That, you know, is a little bit, uh, a little bit unclear because he, he kind of was a little vague in that. But, but the, I think Shocking. the point either way is that you, if you drop the, the interest rates that much, that you'd see the Dow soar. Fair enough. Oh, so I think that's right, Harry. Do you think that's right? Uh, yeah, I think that if that we would, uh, that if we. Yeah, if we had a dramatic drop like that, or if we hadn't had any uh, tightening at all, that a Dow, uh, where, the where the market's trading at 24, 27 times earnings, I think that that's a realistic Harry. call. 10,000 mm -hmm. 10, points higher is almost a 50% increase. So you're right. You're right. Mm -hmm. uh, let's add another 8 or 9 percentage. So we'd be trading at 25 or 26 times earnings. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's bubble territory. It is the Fed's job precisely to keep us from bubbles. Uh, I think the Fed's doing its job. I just did an interview with the Washington Post this evening. Heather Long called me. She's a wonderful reporter at the Washington Post. She's thorough. And whenever she calls me, I think she asks me questions to try and get me in trouble uh, because she asks <laughs> me the questions and then she giggles, you know, like, try, take that. Try and answer that one, Mr. Farr, and see if you can you know, uh, not, not irritate every client you've ever had. Uh, uh, it's, not my, it's not my intention to irritate uh, any client I've ever had. Uh, I, and I try, I'm not really trying to be partisan about this. I don't really have, believe I have a Republican or a Democratic view of things. But uh, I, 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 she was uh, uh, asking me about the president's remarks about whether he should wait and see about whether he was going to demote uh, Jay Powell uh, the president responded, let's wait and see what he does at this meeting. She said, what do you think? Can you just make a comment on the president's urging the Federal Reserve governor, uh, chairman to uh, lower interest rates? I said, certainly I have a comment. Stop it. For the love of God, stop <laughs> it. Leave the Fed alone. That we have an independent Fed and that that is sacrosanct is essential to the safety and well-being of the United States and the U.S. economy, period. President Nixon went after his Fed chairman as he was approaching re-election. And so, uh, and he had, and the Fed chairman's name was Arthur Burns, and he pushed Arthur Burns to lower rates. He wanted a soaring economy coming into the 19, uh, I guess, 68 election, 72, 72. election. Which, mm -hmm. 72 election. Yes, 72 election, uh, his second term. So it was in the early 70s. And Burns did it, kept, and the economy took off, was soaring, soaring, and that got Richard Nixon reelected, was very and responsible for, and? 71, 72 were great years in the market, 15, plus true. 15 and plus 19 percent. I mean, 73, I, 74, who, not so much. Who doesn't like that? And then we get into Jimmy Carter after that brief interim with Gerald Ford, who may have been one of the noblest men who's ever been president, Gerald Ford, terrific human being who really 
took over a very difficult position. I think did have tried to do his very best with it. Uh, also then led to Jimmy Carter, uh, who I think is one of probably the finest people, human beings, morally, ethically, to have ever been president, who I don't think history will judge, indeed, was a very good president. In fact, he wasn't a very good president um, by history. But we got to these 17 and 18 percent interest rates because our economy became crippled. So what was good for Richard Nixon was not good for the U.S. economy. Uh, if Donald Trump is successful here, it could be very good for Donald Trump, and it could cripple financially the next generation, a full decade of American history. I think Jay Powell knows that. I think he's above it. And I think this constant baiting of Jay Powell uh, is, 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 rather, is rather dangerous. So um, please remember that on the forecast, we think that money's hard to make. So be careful with it, ladies and gentlemen. We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. Emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. Write that down. Have it tattooed somewhere if you like, just for God's sakes. As soon as, for, don't forget it, because as soon as you forget it, you're going to learn a very expensive lesson. Um, these are times that can be trying, but our country has endured a whole lot over a few hundred years of its existence, and we will go through more. There always seems to be a new twist on the challenges of today, and uh, we're certainly seeing some new twists. I think that it's a mistake for the Fed to react too quickly. I think they need to be data dependent. I think they need to be judicious, and I think they need to be patient. While the economy is slowing, it is not stopping. It is not shrinking. It's continuing to grow just at a slower pace. And by the way, if I was to tell you that you were going to be chairman of the Federal Reserve uh, next year and that you could expect an unemployment rate of 3.6% and GDP growth of 2% and inflation of one and three quarter percent, would you take that deal? I would take that deal and I would sing the Alleluia Chorus. What kind of a dreamier situation? How does it get dreamier than that if you're Fed chairman? Let's sit down. Let's remember we're all adults. Let's see what happens. We're seeing some wage inflation now. That makes sense when you have very full employment. What do I mean by that? I mean that there are more than a million jobs. There are more than a million jobs looking to hire then there are people available to be hired right now. We don't need to create more jobs in this country, ladies and gentlemen. We've got plenty of jobs. So as these people are trying to hire, as employers are trying to hire and they can't find people, guess how they're going to get Harry Jennings to go over and run marketing and media at my competition? They're going to pay him more. And he's going to walk in my office and say, hey, boss, I really don't want to leave, but these people have offered me $10,000 more. <laughs> what are you going to do? I'm either going to say yes, I'm either going to say good luck, Harry, in your net position, or I'm going to say, okay, Harry, I'll pay that. I don't have a choice. I've got, this is supply and demand. If there is no supply of workers and I continue to have demand, I'm going to pay more. That's not a bad thing because all of that middle class of Americans that drive 70% of the U.S. economy are going to be earning more. They're starting to earn more now. Let's be patient. Let's see if this economic recovery uh, can actually expand on its own. Let's not rush to throw more money at it when it might not be needed. And when indeed it may have very dire consequences of forming the sort of bubble that Arthur Burns formed in the 1970s. More from me next week. Call and write. We appreciate the, uh, we appreciate the texts and the emails. Uh, please follow our tweets. I've posted uh, my CNBC uh, hit today. Also, I'm the featured op-ed on CNBC.com on exactly this subject if you'd like to learn more of what I'm really thinking about this. Ladies and gentlemen, when we come back, we're going to go, as we always do, to Washington. Dan Mahaffey, the senior political analyst on the forecast from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress, will be joining me as we talk about what's going on in Europe, what's going on in China, What's going on on Capitol Hill and why the hell Maxine Waters suggested that Facebook should stop its plans to launch a cyber currency? I'd like to, Dan to explain to me exact, exactly uh, uh, Congressperson Waters' 
expertise in cryptocurrencies when we come back on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Thank you for listening to The Farcast. We'd like to introduce a new daily show for you, The Farcast's three-minute morning brief. Every morning before the sun rises, we bring you markets, commodities, and futures. Just the facts to start your day. The Farcast's three-minute morning brief. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or your favorite platform. And now, back to Michael and The Farcast. Now more with Michael Farr and The Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it a lot. Hope I didn't offend anyone in my first segment. Comments on the Fed, the President, the Markets, and Maxine Waters, which I, I promise I'm going to ask Mahaffey to explain uh, Maxine Waters to us. If anybody can, Mahaffey can. Uh, Dan Mahaffey is Senior Vice President, Director of Policy at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. He holds a master's degree in security studies with a concentration in U.S. defense policy from Georgetown University, a bachelor's in government with a minor's in history, and Mandarin Chinese, also from Georgetown. He studied in uh, Shanghai, uh, and he uh, did a fair amount of research on U.S., China, and Taiwan trilateral relations. He's published all over the place. He's smart as hell, and you get to hear him here every week. We're so lucky to have him. Welcome back, Dan. Good to be back. How are you, Michael? I am, uh, I am wonderful. Uh, Dan, uh, with all that's going on this week, I have to tell you something that just grabbed my attention. Are you ready? Sure. haagen now has a spirits ice cream that is bourbon praline pecan with real bourbon. It says, I don't know about the fake <laughs> bourbon, but I, I, I think... Uh, this could this could perhaps be life changing for me. Um, <laughs> before well, I didn't we... I didn't quite take you as the person who's going to be using Ben and Jerry's new CBD ice cream. So uh, uh, you know everyone's kind of well, trying to go into these new culinary uh, avenues. Well, I can't imagine why anybody would go the CBD route when you have uh, Hagen Dazs bourbon pecan available. I mean, uh, you know. I, I, I uh, work pretty hard to maintain my weight at 175 pounds. I think that may go out the window now. I, I could be two bills easy if this stuff is as good as it sounds. All right. Uh, anyway, uh, so you've studied, uh, you actually studied and wrote about uh, Taiwan, uh, China, and the U.S., uh, not necessarily Hong Kong, but that had to be in there. Tell us what's going on over there, and why are they trying to uh, send those poor people from Hong Kong to be tried in China, Dan? Well, I think what you have first is let's separate out this this truly horrendous murder case where there was a murder that took place in Taiwan. Uh, the suspect's a Hong Kong resident, but because of the strange nature of the laws that cover Taiwan, which is not part of China but part of China, uh, under the eyes of the of the mainland law, there was no way to extradite him in that case. But longer run, what you've seen is that Xi Jinping, as he's really tried to consolidate power and control the flow of information, that Hong Kong being this bastion of free expression and a common law legal system that respects both British and international precedent is a is a direct challenge to his control of China, uh, and it serves as a, a clearinghouse for a range of authors, dissidents, um, as well as a truly independent business sector, which are things that the, the current Chinese regime is not too fond of. How does all of this play into the trade negotiations that are going on? And will any of this, do you think, be mentioned when President Trump and President Xi apparently meet in the next week or so? Well, I don't think it necessarily plays into the trade negotiations directly because Hong Kong is under a separate legal structure. That was part of the handover from the British to the to the Chinese is that the U.S. and many other countries kind of recognize it as a, as a separate jurisdiction, even though it is under Chinese sovereignty. Uh, so that's why you're able to have different investment and trade rules with Hong Kong, uh, visa-free travel, things like that. But, but, um, Dan, it, but Dan, hang on. If... If China wants greater control over Taiwan and wants greater control over Hong Kong, 
and the U.S. is supporting uh, their respective independences, wouldn't that sort of uh, uh, put a damper on uh, the more, uh, I don't know, I, I was going to say collegial nature, if that such a thing exists in politics anymore, collegial nature of whatever discussions they might have. I mean, wouldn't they use one as a lever for the other, I guess is my question. I think Hong Kong is getting most of the attention, but the bigger lever is going to be whether we sell a package of uh, weaponry to Taiwan, and that proposal is currently being reviewed. And what do you think? Does that happen or not? And, and what would the China, how would the Chinese respond if we sold weapons to Taiwan? Well, they've always traditionally done it, you know, kind of in a sense of, okay, they're going to protest it. We're going to do it. It's kind of business as usual. And I have to look, to be quite honest, at the, at the range of what's being proposed. Generally, we've sold the Taiwanese pretty outdated equipment. Uh, I think, though, the Chinese will take more umbrage if you start to see more modern equipment or stuff that is a, a longer range or longer reach that would change that balance on both sides of the strait. Um, the Hong Kong issue, though, I think where there is leverage comes to how much longer is Hong Kong this bridge between the mainland economy and the rest of the world, and how much longer do we uh, allow it in a way to be this, this attractive business des destination? Um, because I think even if the U.S. doesn't do anything, if the Chinese went ahead with this extradition law, a lot of business people are going to have second thoughts about uh, doing business in Hong Kong or transiting through it. Okay, so there is a real effect then and consequence for uh, investors and business people and, uh, and certainly Wall Street, but it's not only Wall Street because it then turns into global trade, doesn't it? I mean, it could really further hamper uh, that free trade that has been rather vital to the development of that region, Yes. Oh, definitely. And, and Hong Kong serving as, you know, not only a, a major regional financial center, but truly one of the, you know, the main global capitals of finance. Um, the, the leadership of Hong Kong now is how, trying to figure out how do they, how do they back down? Um, and particularly, too, uh, you know, as we understand that on the mainland of China, uh, many people don't get the full version of what's going on in Hong Kong. So mainland Chinese probably think this is a bunch of spoiled children protesting, or at least are being told that by their government. Well, so ladies and gentlemen, of course, on the forecast, we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Uh, but it's the interpretation of every one of those areas and how each will impact investors that's our main concern on the forecast. And I think Dan has just given us a wonderfully cogent explanation about why this conflict over in Asia is very important to uh, the global economy, global free markets, and could have an impact here if it's mishandled. We know that China's economy, economic growth, is slowing, uh, and this could further, uh, I think, uh, impede their economic growth. So it's a, it's a hot topic right now, but it means something to us. It's not just that thing that's happening, you know, on the other side of the world and we, we don't have to pay attention to it and we hope it works out. We do need to pay attention to it. And as always, you know, the United States position on this uh, or and any of these topics uh, matters greatly, uh, can legitimize, uh, we, can le we can really legitimize and support an independent Taiwan if we were to choose to step into that battle. So everybody kind of pays closer attention to us. You know, a number of years ago, I asked the, I was having lunch with the Chinese ambassador, and I thought I asked, uh, I was wrong, by the way, I thought I was asking a reasonably polite question. Uh, turns out I wasn't. Uh, but I asked the ambassador as they were then, and this was 10 years ago, uh, very upset about uh, the issue of Taiwanese independence, which China doesn't ever think that they are. Uh, and um, uh, Taiwanese uh, asking and fighting for independence. And, um, and the Chinese ambassador was saying that the United States ought to mind its own business. Uh, in fact, uh, let me see exactly how he said it. Exactly how he said it was, the United States should mind its own business. That's what the Chinese <laughs> ambassador said. Yeah. So <laughs> subtle, subtle as ever. And Chinese, I said, well, Chinese military huh? leaders will even Chinese military leaders will even in these conversations say, do you want to trade Los Angeles for Taipei? They'll they'll threaten. Really? They, they see it as a nuclear, 
level uh, issue if we ever came to to truly skin to blows over it. Wow. Well, uh, I feel like the church lady. Isn't that special? Uh, <laughs> let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and. Isn't that special? Isn't it? You're going to threaten Los Angeles and and threaten L.A. over Taiwan. Uh, I said, but I looked at him, Dan. I said, Mr. Ambassador, uh, my question is when China is a global, you know, one of the leading powers in the world, uh, one of the largest economies in the world, as you, uh, you know, as we uh, are citizens of the globe, uh, the United States and China, and uh, let's add a couple of the other largest countries, more advanced countries, largest economies in the world. What responsibility do we have as citizens of the world to answer a certain country's uh, cry or plea for help or intervention? Um, let's not just say that Taiwan is uh, calling out to the rest of the world for support, but what, what, what responsibility of noblesse oblige, if you will, uh, exists. And he turned on me like I had just spit in his soup. <laughs> he said, only an American, an arrogant American would suggest that you're one of the world leading powers. You're the biggest power in the world. That's what you all Americans think. You always think and whatever America says goes. Well, that's not the case. Uh, there are a lot of large countries and it's nobody's role to tell anybody else what to do and America should mind its own business. And he got really angry. I mean, red-faced angry. I was like, wait a minute. Aren't we just talking about... And apparently we weren't. So uh, I, <laughs> I, I, yeah. it's funny, you know, for uh, uh, when I thought I was asking... Did, so, Dan, you're the China expert. Should I have known? I mean, was that just a stupid question? Should I have known that that wasn't going to be benign? You relieved yourself on the third rail of the Beijing metro in that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he looked like. That was the face he gave me, as if I had relieved myself on the, uh, on the, on the, on the, on the third rail. Uh, so uh, where does all this, before we lose all of our time here, Dan, where do we end up here through all of these discussions, please? Well, I think if you're, if you're thinking about this as an investor, you have to look, one, what is the stability of Hong Kong um, and the, the trade and particularly the financial flows that move through there? Um, what do you see also in terms of, you know, that not just uh, China, but Taiwan is also a major manufacturing center uh, for the U.S. and the world. Companies like Foxconn and others are, are Taiwan-based. And how does this geopolitical uncertainty then fuel your, your decision-making on these investments? Um, and also, how do we start to, and I think this is a question we're going to have members of Congress asking uh, these, uh, these funds that do these index funds and these international indexing, how do you break out China from the rest of these, these markets in a way so that investors can better understand what their exposure is um, because for so long it's been lumped in as uh, Asian developing or developing market when it's entirely now a almost a, a, a sweet generous case when you deal with them. Always fascinating to talk to you. I can't believe we're out of time. That means I talk too much because I, I, I still have so many questions for you. Finally, before we go, and, I'm, and I know I'm out of time, uh, Harry, Dan, why is Maxine Waters telling Facebook that they should not move forward with a cryptocurrency until Maxine Waters is able to understand it. I'm not sure that God nor man uh, in, in heaven or on earth has created enough time for Maxine Waters or other members of Congress to understand cryptocurrencies. How long is Facebook supposed to wait and why would she do that? <laughs> well, I think it's just that, that regulatory reflex to try and figure out what this is going to mean for payment systems, currency, and more and more tech attention paid to technology companies as they adopt these almost a, uh, supranational roles uh, now moving from not just data but to finance. But we have cryptocurrencies. Why? What? I mean, they're already out there. Uh, you know, if Congress wants to study them, I hope like hell they have been studying them because they do have those kind of implications as you just suggested. But, I mean... Um, Come on. I mean, stop, stop a commercial enterprise, stop corporate America from 
doing something that everybody else is doing just didn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, get off of that soapbox for now, but of course we'll be back next week. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress and one of the smartest guys I know. When we come back on the forecast, my great friend Richard Thompson, Dick Thompson, has been in the pharmaceutical lobbying industry all of his life, one of the smartest guys I know, and we're going to talk about drug pricing and what's, what the real battle is on Capitol Hill and how pharmaceutical companies are supposed to survive. This is all adding cost to the consumer, uh, and, and it has huge economic impacts uh, about whether we can keep people alive a few years longer and keep them working and productive in the workforce. That's a really good thing economically when we come back on the forecast. You're listening to Forecast. Do you have an upcoming function and need a dynamic speaker to engage your audience? You've enjoyed listening to the Farcast, so why not invite Michael Farr to speak at your next event? In addition to hosting the Farcast and serving as president of the advisory firm Farr, Miller, and Washington, Michael is the longest-serving paid contributor to CNBC. He is recognized by audiences, and his presentations on the economic outlook are always well-received. Michael has recently appeared at such venues as the Economic Club of Memphis, the University of Delaware, Matheson Financial Conference, and the YPO-WPO Economic Summit. Add your event to the growing list of organizations who have been informed and captivated by Michael's insights. For more information, or to book Michael for an upcoming event, please email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com, or call me at 202-530-5608. You're listening to Forecast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Forecast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for being with us again this week. A terrific show for you uh, this week. Hope you're enjoying it. June 18th, uh, 2019. Stock markets are roaring uh, within 1% of their all-time highs for the Dow and S&P, pretty much right up there. The president's making nice-nice with President Xi, or at least they're going to meet, and apparently they won't start calling each other names in the first few minutes, and markets like that. Uh, and uh, uh, we've got Facebook, who wants to start a cryptocurrency. They announced that today. The stock did well on the news, but it did not impress Representative Maxine Waters, who came out and asked them to stall those plans until Congress could better understand what a cryptocurrency was. I'm not sure why Facebook's plans are uh, making Congress suddenly interested. We've had cryptocurrencies for a while or why she may or may not like Facebook. But uh, stay tuned because uh, uh, Congress uh, never, never fails to surprise all of us. I, I, I assure you, it's, 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 uh, it's remarkable as we look uh, um, and see what's coming up uh, out, out, of, out of Congress and how they're going to regulate everything. Maybe if it moves, you've got to tax it or regulate it, as President Ronald Reagan said. Anyway, as we move from Wall Street and then Washington to the world on the forecast and all of the implications for uh, investors, it is a great honor now to be joined by my friend Richard Thompson. Dick Thompson is senior policy consultant right now at Aiken Gump, has 40 years of experience in government affairs. He helps clients advance their critical business and public policy objectives. He spent the majority of his professional career in the pharmaceutical and food and drug areas, uh, which is basically where he concentrates uh, his work. Uh, He served as senior vice president for policy and government affairs for Bristol Myers Squibb, where he established and led a 45-member global staff, was a member of the company uh, operating committee. He has uh, spent time on Capitol Hill. Uh, he worked on Capitol Hill. He's an insider's insider. Uh, but when it comes to health care, uh, Dick Thompson is the man. I mean, he really gets this as well as anybody you ever talk to uh, in Washington or in the U.S., truly. He has his uh, law degree from the Catholic University of America. Welcome to the forecast, my friend Dick Thompson. Thank you very much, Michael. I'm very glad to be here and particularly on the subject of health care, although your previous two topics were of equal interest, I'm sure, to your audience. <laughs> Big-time issues. You know, it's amazing, and we, we talk, too, with our political analysts about what's going on with Hong Kong and Taiwan and China oh. and how they're going to affect this negotiation between Xi and Trump. I mean, it's, and the implications, 
if you are going to uh, have a less friendly Hong Kong on global commerce and what that means to investors and what that will mean to a uh, Chinese economy that's already slowing. Fascinating insights from Dan Mahaffey. So I, always, I, I think I learn more than our listeners every time we do one of these things. <laughs> well, and on the China issue relative to the pharmaceutical industry and anybody else which has an intellectual property base, they're absolutely critical. They've been um, light-fingered with our IP for many years. It's a major issue in contention between the president and the president of China. And uh, I hope we can resolve it because the uh, expense of developing new products, whatever the, the technology, but especially in pharmaceuticals, uh, is protected by very strong American intellectual property laws, and China's just disregarded them from the get-go. So When you say light-fingered, you mean stealing yes, intellectual yes. property. Yes? I'm trying to be a euphemistic. Well, you're, you see, this is what, ladies and gentlemen, people who spent a lot of time in Washington learn to talk gently. Now, you wouldn't believe it listening to folks in the media, but a real longtime Washington insider, they, they, they speak gently like Dick Thompson does. Okay, so Dick, <laughs> tell us, you know, we understand that there are some global threats, China, uh, China's uh, light-fingeredness. Uh, of intellectual property and, and including the pharmaceutical and healthcare technology being high on the list of threats. Tell us, give us the state of the pharmaceutical industry now. It certainly seems to be under fire. Absolutely. And uh, it is uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, <clears throat> some uh, with merit, some without. Just a quick synopsis of the industry. It has changed dramatically in the last 30 years. The trigger on that uh, was a passage in 1984 of something called the Hatch-Waxman Act, which created a domestic uh, generic industry. Prior to that time, it, it had less than 5% of the market. It now has 82% of all the prescription drugs uh, written in this country uh, are generic. What that has done is, is shifted the focus uh, from the branded by the branded industry to those diseases that have a smaller population. Because the chronic diseases are covered with high blood pressure, uh, heart disease, etc., and they're available in multiple generic products. But now we're focusing on things like Alzheimer's, uh, cancer, uh, the neuromuscular diseases, and those are all very, very complicated scientific base. And as I'm sure you know, Michael, because you follow the market so closely, a number of companies, uh, Lilly and Amgen, uh, among them, have dropped out of the Alzheimer's race. They've spent billions on it. They've turned up no new product, and they're just not continuing that. So you had this contraction of the patient base for the branded industry and the enormous increase in expense of development, and therefore it has driven up the cost of many of the new products treating those therapeutic areas. So let's, let's talk about Alzheimer's, and because you're basically saying that these major pharmaceutical companies that do a bunch of research and spend billions of dollars on the research in order to find a drug that could make a cure are looking at Alzheimer's and the threat of, of having to go generic, and they're saying, we can't in this regula regulated environment make enough money from the drug that we might be able to, to discover it could prevent this horrible disease, but we're going to spend so much money, we, we can't afford to do this, and the government and regulators won't allow us to be paid fairly. So we're going to stop the research, and therefore, if there was a hope of having a cure for Alzheimer's coming out of those companies, that research has stopped? Is that what you're saying? Because well, it, it hasn't reasons? stopped entirely. And let, let me just modify that a little bit. It's not a matter of we're not we can't make enough money, they can't find the cure. And to continue to put money into a therapeutic area for which they do not seem to be able to find the key uh, just doesn't make any sense. It's like drilling oil wells. You drill a dry hole, you go next door, you drill a dry hole, you do five or six of them, you stop drilling. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. So it's not just a matter of return on investment, it's, it's a return on discovery to find something, and it is very, very complicated. All these neuromuscular diseases, all these neurological diseases 
are proving to be extremely difficult uh, to address. How does that relate then to the, uh, I think you said 82% of all drugs that are being uh, issued in, under generic names, which means basically the pharmaceutical companies aren't making money on those generic sales, correct? The generic companies are making money, but the people who right. discovered the products aren't making any. I'll give you an example. In my former company, Squibb, we had the first uh, angiotensin-converting enzyme called Capitin. When that went off patent, there were like 12 generic products in the market in the first week. By the end of that first week, several of the generics were using the generic Capitin as a loss leader because the, pr the price had just dropped right through the floor. So that to get their investment back on that product, they had to say, well, we'll give this to you if you buy some others. The, the generic pressure on prices going down when there's multiple generics is enormous. It's, it's, it was unpredicted, but that's what's happened. So a consequence of that is the generic market is having some difficulties, and you're seeing consolidations there, and they're doing everything they can to prop up their products and raise prices. A good example of that was the EpiPen. Do you remember that a couple of years ago? Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. That went from three to two to one company, and that one company said, aha, we've got a monopoly, and they jacked up the price and created a huge, huge problem. So, so there is a market base to all of this, and that's a very difficult message to get across to the public. It's almost impossible to politicians because they don't want to hear that. Well, it, uh, it, but it, it, it does make sense. If, if I'm going to spend uh, billions of dollars in investing and in trying to find the cure for something, uh, as, as you know, I'm not the Red Cross. I'm not obligated to just sort of be a great do-gooder out there. I'm trying to run a company. Uh, I need to, at some point, make my billions of dollars back if I, you know, I mean, the, the, what is, what's always the example? I mean, um, is the cure for cancer, right? I mean, well, uh, maybe they're going to cure cancer and that'll be the richest company on earth. Well, maybe not in this environment. If, tell me what you think. Could somebody be the richest company if, if they cure cancer? I mean, is that company going to thrive or will they be allowed to profit or will it be regulated? How well, that's, that's an excellent question because you saw that in the HIV area. Uh, HIV 20 years ago was a death sentence. Uh, it is no longer the case there are a number of products out there that uh, let people live with HIV uh, a normal life. Cancer is so pervasive, and everybody has either had it or knows somebody who's had it, uh, that a, a cure for cancer would be something I'm almost certain the government would step in and figure out some way to, to adjust the, the pricing on it. The thing about cancer, though, uh, Michael, is... There's so many different types of it that it's unlikely right. technically right. to find a cure. But let me give you one example. Pfizer, which is the largest company, has been on an acquisition crusade for 20 years. And their main target now is cancer. And they just announced another uh, acquisition, a biopharma company called Array Biopharma. They paid $11 billion for it. And the annual sales of that company is only $174 million. So they're betting on wow. their pipeline, that that pipeline will help them in the oncology area. That's a big bet. Well, you, it's a huge bet. But, but when you talk about a pipeline, just for our listeners to take a pause for a second, uh, you're talking about the, the drugs that they're researching that still have to work through the FDA correct. and prove themselves to be successful. Correct. Okay. Uh, and so work them through the, the whole testing uh, pyramid, which begins – in the laboratory, then moves to insects, and then it moves to rabbits, and then it moves to simians, and then it moves to people, uh, and that's expensive and long term, and it doesn't always work. Let's let me go back to our Alzheimer example, where the drug companies are suspending uh, further research, and and in your example, you suggested that they uh, are uh, that it's no longer fruitful. Um, uh, that, that simply they've tried so many things and they're not making enough progress, I think is what you said. They're not making enough right. progress to pursue it. Okay. Technically, they're are, not are, making enough. Aren't there, uh, are there uh, situations and examples where uh, the pharmaceutical company uh, could invest 
so much and then have to basically say stop will never get will never get compensated past a certain point that's a great question because it's at the heart of the dilemma right now because this, this is really about risk allocation and yes. the government and the companies have got to figure out some mechanism where that risk is allocated so it does two things it reduces individual companies investment requirement and two generates enough research to develop the product and there's a couple of models for that one is to look at the antitrust laws to begin to uh, figure out a way for companies to work together the second one that I would love to see some discussion on, and nobody's even talking about it in the Congress yet is an NIH consortium with a company or companies to work on some of these diseases where if the NIH does the basic research, which is expensive, and the companies can basically lease that or cooperatively work with them on it and then bring the product to market, government would get a payback from that product, but it would also reduce the risk to an individual company. It really has to be done in some way because if not, many of these diseases I don't think are going to have cures in the near term. As much progress as we've made, uh, there's a lot more that needs to be done it needs to be done in a way that allows the research to continue and ultimately to come to a good conclusion. Well, okay. So, what we're if if a company uh, is pursuing uh, a research drug, and you talked about Pfizer buying this company, you know, for billions of dollars when they've only got a hundred and some odd million dollars, uh, uh, would you say in revenues? Was, was it revenues for that? The revenue was $174 million. And they paid $11 billion or something? They paid $11 was, billion. That, you know, that's, just, that's, that's just stupid, stupid math, meaning that doesn't work. <laughs> they, better, they better have some kind of fabulous drug on which they can make some money, or they just did their shareholders a horrible disservice, right? But, okay. So, that's what some analysts are saying. Uh, that, they did, that, that they did do a tremendous disservice? Is that what they're it's saying? It's a big bet. It's a big yeah. bet. They're a little more gentle, but that's a big bet. Okay. So I want to I kind of focus a little bit further and say uh, what we're talking about is the cost, who should bear the cost for drug development. And if we're not going to allow the pharmaceutical money, companies to earn their money back after they've spent billions of dollars in research, your suggestion that perhaps NIH should take on some of these projects is kind of a way just to suggest if I'm, if I'm listening properly, that the government uh, should take over some of the responsibility for funding this research if the government's going to regulate the profits. Is that what well, you just said? Yeah, that's, that's true. Let me, can I cast it a little differently? The, uh, please, the, I'm not the, trying to get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. The, and I've raised this a number of times, and we'll keep talking about it, but if the, the companies have got an enormous amount of research and base, and they've got tremendously talented scientists. But there needs to be a mechanism, and there are some public-private partnerships that exist with some industries, particularly the defense industry, where they could the partnership could be generated and developed, so the risk is allocated, and, and the research is allocated. I think that would be very beneficial. Uh, it doesn't mean the government's going to take it over. It doesn't mean the companies are completely indemnified. But it does create incentives, I feel, this is pure me, I feel would generate more durable results in some of these categories. It had proven to be so complicated to come up with solutions. Richard Thompson, a senior policy consultant at Aiken Gump, has spent over 40 years in government affairs in the pharmaceutical industry and ran the government affairs office for Bristol-Myers Squibb for many years. Dick, we're just out of time, but I have one more question, and, and we've gone over, but gosh, I've learned so much already, and I hope you'll come back. You're just a fabulous guest. Um, I, I tell, if you could wave your magic wand right now, what sort of outcome would you like to see? What should the government do? What should the pharmaceutical companies do to get into a more ideal situation that's going to work for everybody? I think there has to be uh, some uh, consensus on priorities, 
on research, priorities on marketing, priorities on uh, selling techniques, and reimbursement. Uh, it's not just the pharmaceutical companies, Michael. There's a whole chain of uh, organizations involved in the distribution of products, starting with the companies, then the distributors, pharmacies, uh, wholesalers, uh, discounters, the government. And, uh, Medicaid, for example, take one minute, in Medicaid is a state-based but run by the feds, and there's a rebate on every product sold in virtually every state under Medicaid from the companies to the individual states. That's a very expensive proposition. It costs billions of dollars to the companies. Those types of things need to be examined. Uh, if we're really going to get costs under why control. Why would they do that? Tell me, tell me why, we would, why the, the, uh, the companies have to rebate to the states under, uh, because under Medicaid. Medicaid has a formulary for each state, and it varies from state to state. And if you want your product on that Medicaid formulary, you have to pay a rebate. Congress passed so it's that. A, it's a pay-to-play. Pay-to-play, exactly right. Pay-to-play for Medicaid that benefits the states, and it, if you don't, you're not going to you're not going to get your name on uh, your drug sold at all if you don't pay that. Uh, that's states. correct. And I would argue, quite frankly, that's driven up the cost of medicines. It's like a balloon; you push it in one side, it's going to come out another. And uh, no question. So that's that was a policy decision made. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, under a Republican administration, uh, we were all appalled that they were doing it because they, we didn't think they understood the economics, and it's turned out that they didn't. But uh, it's there, and it's very – money from the private sector to a government is like cocaine. It's addictive, and once they get the tr- uh, stream of money in, they're not going to turn it back. Money from the private sector – the government is like cocaine <laughs> like that dick thompson thank you so much for being with us on the Farcast, ladies and gentlemen uh, another great show for you thank you so much for being with us for taking us each week into your cars earbuds gymnasiums kitchens offices we appreciate it a whole lot thank you for your notes and your letters i'm grateful as i possibly can be and i am uh, recording tonight in rehoboth beach delaware Uh, I will uh, hopefully see you on the boardwalk when I go for uh, ice cream with Dad later tonight. (laughs) See you next week. (laughs) For the Farcast, I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. Every week we talk with insiders and experts to bring you insights into the forces shaping our economy. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoy making the show for you. We'd like to remind you that if you think you've heard a recommendation to buy or sell any security on the show tonight, you haven't. Farcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. Before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you speak with an investment professional. And if we can be of any assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please give us a call at 202-530-5600 or email at invest at farmmiller.com and one of our investment professionals will be glad to help. The Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings, and our production engineer is Claude Jennings. We are coming to you tonight from our virtual studio, but our home studio is Tony Kornheiser's at Chatter Restaurant in Friendship Heights, Washington, D.C. We love getting your notes, and you can email us at farcast at farmiller.com. Join us next week when we welcome back audience favorite Stephanie Link from TIA Nuveen. Until then, for the Farcast, I'm Harry Jennings.